and we're good to go. Well, first of all, th thank you so much for your time. Um, it's the end of the day, um, so I expect you probably would have gone home if if um, if this wasn't happening. But thank you, um, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Um, I would I would rather start by asking a few generic questions. I um, uh, probably should have done a better of a homework, but I'm very curious to understand how you ended up um, in this f um, field of research. If um, if you would please. Yeah, sure. So I did my PhD um, at UWA, and uh, this is I got the PhD in 2018. But I've always kind of been interested in questions about epistemology, so how we know things, um, questions about metaphysics, you know, ontology, what exists, that kind of thing. And uh, when I did my first degree, which was in computer science, I was very interested in the programming and maybe what this meant for, say, human decision making. And I started to ask really big questions about, uh, you know, whether there's free will or, you know, whether you could ever have a, a computer program that could act like humans do. And the computer programmers at the time and the computer scientists said, look, these are very philosophical questions. You should maybe go down the hall to the philosophy department and start to talk to those people. So I think starting off in computer science, I was very interested in the tech side of thing. But then I started to ask kind of those bigger questions and then just speaking to more and more people about those kinds of questions, I started to get interested in philosophy. And then I kind of saw how, uh, how interesting it was and decided to kind of go down that path, um, which kind of led me to, um, to do a degree in philosophy and eventually uh, a PhD. So the, the master's degree and the PhD were in philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So currently, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. And the particular, li um, line of interest in your PhD was around, um, the epistemology of emotions is that how you would describe well, it was really about self-knowledge um and so how we know our own mental states um so the emotions is part of that because i guess we have our emotions we also have our beliefs our intentions desires you know there's a lot going on mentally and i guess i kind of was attracted to one particular view in the philosophy of self-knowledge and recently i've been thinking about how that view can explain how we know um, our own emotions. But um, I, I guess when you first get into philosophy, you read Descartes, you read Hume, and you know all of those philosophers are interested in what we can know. Um, so Descartes famously, uh, I, I guess maybe Descartes didn't really hold this view, but a lot of people attribute this view to Descartes that he thought that we can't be mistaken when we attribute our mental states to ourselves. So, you know, if you think you're in pain, if you think you're feeling heat, then necessarily you feel pain or you feel heat. And then the question might be, well, how, how much further can that, can that go? Um, supposing you feel anxious, does that mean that you're actually anxious? Supposing that you believe you're in fear, does that mean you're actually in fear? So kind of there's this interesting question about how, um, how certain we can be about our own mental state self-descriptions. And as soon as you say that it's not infallible, so we're capable of making errors, then there's a really interesting question is, well, what happens when we make mistakes how certain can we be about our own mental um, self-descriptions? Because, you know, it's really hard to know about the world and it's hard to do science, but most of us think that when it comes to our own mental states, right, we think we're in pain, that's got to be the most, you know, the certain bedrock. And then we kind of go from there. So I was interested in this question about what introspection actually tells us. Um, can we make mistakes? You know, if we think that we're having a particular belief or we think we desire something, can we actually be wrong about it? You know, supposing you say that I, I desire to get some ice cream, like, would it make sense for me to say, no, you don't, you don't desire that. 
most of the time, I think when we attribute mental states to ourselves, we, you know, most people would not try to correct us. Right. Um, so there's this presumption that when we say that we're in a mental state, we are in that mental state. Um, but as, as maybe you've read the paper, there's lots of situations where we can be mistaken. Uh, sometimes we think we're in emotional states when we're not. And maybe sometimes we can think that we believe things when we don't and think we desire things when we don't. And then the question is, what else can we be wrong about? What happens when we make mistakes? Uh, can we really be that certain? Um, you know, Descartes spoke a lot about the cogito, you know, I think therefore I am. We're not supposed to be able to doubt our own existence. That's the one thing we're supposed to know with certainty. And so there's this really inter question, interesting question. What else can we know with certainty? Um, and how far is that scope, I suppose? So for me, it's a really foundational question. And then once you start to answer those questions, then, you know, for me, you can start to do metaphysics or other kinds of epistemology. But it was that, I suppose, foundational approach uh, that really interested me about, you know, because we, we start from our own mental states and then we look into the world. So I think most philosophers, those classical philosophers that you have a look at when you first start doing philosophy, like Descartes or Kant, they all had really interesting things to say about the mind. And I guess that's what kind of got me interested in that. So um, I guess I had, I had two intense episodes of thinking about what you had written in the paper. Uh, yeah. One of them was obviously while I was reading the paper. And the second time was right now when you were, when you were describing your path to how you ended up um, exercising interest in this in this area when i was reading the paper uh, i was i was first struck by the question of uh philosophical ethical psychological societal and finally political implications of um of uh you're trying to encourage the uh, the the reader to adopt uh to adopt um um, um Am I saying it right? P, uh, PF, 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 uh, uh, partial first person authority. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so there are numerous questions that have come to my mind. And again, while you were describing it, but I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, ask that question a little bit more broadly from yourself and let you, um, tell us basically what implications do you think um, your view has on how, how, how we come to know our emotions, uh, how much authority we, we have in knowing them. The second, the second, uh, subject that I would like to touch on tonight is around the view that you were, uh, you were mainly, um, rebutting in your paper, which was Barrett's, if I'm pronouncing yeah. your name correctly, yeah. um, um, Barrett's view, which, 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 you know, it's it's one of those it's it's one of those. Um, her language has has the quality. It just takes me takes me immediately to um, a postmodern view on 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 personality, on on um, emotions, on concepts. So I wanted to um, I wanted to encourage you to to um, if you could please uh, rebut that live for us again here. But let's start with let's start with with um, with the potential implications that you think you're. you're your work on a societal level or um, individual uh, level from a psychological perspective could have? Yeah, I think fairly profound because I think the way that we think of ourselves as, you know, persons, we think we have this authority 
Um, and especially when it comes to say therapeutic or maybe even in, you know, therapy or say, even when we're just talking on an interpersonal level with someone else, um, once we concede the fact that we can be mistaken, I think it really does open up, um, a very kind of mindfulness or a very introspective way or a very, um, yeah, very introspective way of dealing with another person because suddenly they can have some insight into how we're actually feeling. You mentioned Barrett's idea. Um, I hope you maybe wish to say something about what the view is, the theory of constructed emotion. Uh, this is the idea that um, you construct emotions given a particular context. So she has a really vivid example about someone, I think it's actually about her, where she goes to a date with somebody and uh, you know she's feeling you know, the butterflies in the stomach. And given that she's at the date, she thinks, oh my goodness, this must be love. But of course she goes home afterwards and throws up. And so the way that she kind of characterizes this episode is that she has, you know, she was really uh, not in love, uh, but actually it was the, the, the feeling she was experiencing at the coffee shop or the date she was on, given the kinds of context that was going on. So she wants to say that, you know, you kind of construct it in that kind of way. I guess the one area where I'd say that I have a kind of, I take issue with that kind of view is that it doesn't seem to leave any um, grounds for saying that we correctly or incorrectly attribute our mental states. And even that example that Barrett gives, I think you want to say something like uh, she made the mistake of thinking that she was feeling the emotion of love. Um, and it's when she went home that she realized that she maybe wasn't experiencing that. But if you say that there were constructions, then that was correct to say that she was in love at the shop. And then when she went home, she was no longer feeling that. So in the paper, I make this point that you know, as soon as you want to talk about correctness or incorrectness, then construction has to sort of stop somewhere. There's got to be a point where I can correct you about your mental state. And the reason I think that's important is because um, it's going to really matter sometimes what emotion you're actually undergoing. Because according to Barrett's view, I don't want to mischaracterize her here, but when you're constructing it, it kind of seems like that settles the matter. And as I mentioned in the paper, it's very interesting that she doesn't really mention confabulation or other kinds of errors that can occur uh, with our emotional self-attributions. And I think it does matter actually when we get it right or wrong, because our emotions tell us a lot about what we're experiencing, what's going on in our lives, what potentially could happen. And while I think this idea of construction is really important, um, it does actually matter when you get it wrong. So that's why I think that we really have to study the mistakes that we make, because otherwise, whatever you say goes. And I think you mentioned before this idea of um, postmodernism. One of the issues I might take with postmodernism is that it's a very interesting theory, but it, it seems to be lacking in certain respects because we want to talk about the truth, right? And uh, even postmodernists um, ought to say that there is some sort of standard, right? Because otherwise, if there's not, then postmodernism itself, it's like, you know, that classic view about relativism. You want to say that there is no truth. And by the way, that's true. Like you can't, you can't even help yourself to concepts like that. Everything is relative, uh, except for this statement that I'm making right now. Um, so again, in the paper, I kind of take issue with this fact that it's all just a matter of construction, because I do think there are going to be cases where someone is in a particular context and it might look like they're showing romantic love or stress or something like this. And it just turns out that they're wrong about that. And I think it does actually matter in order to explain ourselves and to explain the, the causal history, or maybe even try to explain what's going on in that situation. Because once you understand your emotions, um, then you can start to understand why they came about. 
Um, and so that's, it's, it doesn't sound like a big difference, but I think as soon as you um, acknowledge the fact that you can be wrong or right, then I think that you have to step away from this idea of construction and say, no, there will be some situations where you've just got it wrong about yourself. And then looking at why you've made that mistake is very interesting. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Uh, maybe you're uh, self-deceived about something. Maybe you just can't admit to yourself that you're anxious. Maybe you're so you're so proud of yourself, right? You might think that it's uh, shameful to feel anxious in a particular situation. Whereas if you say it's all a matter of construction, you might come along and say, well, this person hasn't attributed um, um, fear or uh, being ashamed or being nervous to themselves. So therefore they're not in that particular mental state. So I think it's important that it recognizes that error can occur. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, I'm, 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 I'm constantly baffled, um, by, um, postmodern adjacent, uh, let's call it, um, theories of mind, reality, mm. society, emotions, and alike. I'm sure your orders of magnitude better qualified than I am to rebut, uh, to, to rebut such positions. But uh, what just, what just came to mind with regards to human emotions um, and I do remember this paragraph from your from your uh, from your paper, which is a uh, which is a quote, uh, um, a reference to uh, to one of her papers where um, I think I think she yeah. ends with she ends with um, it is it is um, it's it's our emotions are how we construct them or or or, or something like that, which which simply means uh, you can do with it what you like we can do with yeah. your 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 you can channel them into whatever you want them to um mm -hmm. to be and yeah go ahead please yeah i mean I, exactly i think that's problematic i mean i think this is the quote you're referring to she says instances of emotion have no objective fingerprints in the face body and brain so accuracy has no scientific meaning it has a social meaning we certainly can ask whether two people agree in their perceptions of emotion or whether a perception is consistent with some norm, but perceptions exist within the perceiver. And that I think sounds very, maybe she doesn't intend it to be, it does sound very postmodern as we're yeah. describing. But, but I just, the, 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 um, the first question that came to my mind was, are we saying, but by, by presupposing what she's um, suggesting in that quote, are we saying that our emotions or what we feel our emotions to be have nothing <laughs> to do with biology? Is that is that because because if they because if they have something to do with biology, yeah. they emerge from within, and right. then at, at a certain level we get a grasp of we, we we get a grasp of them, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think she's saying that they don't have a connection to biology. Um, so certainly, there's a lot going on in the brain when we have emotions, and biology certainly plays a role. Um, I think what she's suggesting is that put all the biological facts on the table, put all the neuroscientific facts on the table, and people can you know, disagree about what emotion is actually occurring there. And somebody might say, oh, that's, that's anger. But somebody might come along from a different culture and say, oh no, that's just what your perception of anger is. Um, you know, Maybe that exact same brain state, that exact same biology in a completely different scenario could be attributed as a different mental state. And if that's the case, then it looks like the biological facts are not going to settle what emotions actually happening here. I mean, if you can have, imagine all the biology and the neuro neuro activity that's going on in the coffee shop, 
and then I move that particular person to a different room of the house, suddenly all the noises aren't there. Um, obviously, those would be accounted for in the brain too. Um, you're going to get a different construction of emotion. And so the idea here is that, of course, all those biological facts are important, but they kind of give rise uh, to different kinds of self-attributions, given that the context is going to be very different. Um, so if you have, for instance, butterflies in the stomach while you know stepping out onto the stage, you're probably going to say you're feeling nervous. But if you have the exact same biology happening, you know, while you're stepping, you know, for a walk, you might say, oh, I've got uh, an upset stomach or I've got something else. So I think that's the point that um, uh, Barrett is talking about because, you know, you can have the exact same brain states happening. Again, they're going to be slightly different because of well, the perceptions you're experiencing, but similar biology. And depending on the context you're in, you know, what you believe about what's happening right now, you're going to be attributing it to something different. And there, I think, I mean, of course, I'd not want to deny any of that, but the last step of the argument that she's making, I'd want to just deny that and say, very true, but we still have to have correctness conditions because it could turn out that you attribute the feeling of, or the emotion of being nervous or anxious when you're not actually anxious. I think that we ought to have some sort of correctness conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, there are these worries, like you said, of uh, postmodernism where there maybe is no fact of the matter. You know, which is the correct interpretation? Well, it's a social construction, um, or it's maybe just some sort of convention that's been agreed upon, you know? And there I take issue that. Uh, I guess what I would, what I would say to, um, to that would be, uh, I mean, good luck, good luck convincing yourself that you're feeling happy when you're having an overwhelming amount of cortisol produced in your body because you're overwhelmingly stressed. And yeah, um, yeah so, <laughs> so that, that was the first well, one. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. so there, but you know, it's, it's possible. Right? I mean, you, you could just like convince yourself that, um, that, you know, that particular feeling is, uh, like I can easily imagine someone being just, uh, deluded about, um, what it means to be happy. Hmm. Um, seems nothing absurd about that. You know, sometimes people cry when they're happy. You know, some, you might say you, you're up, you're upset. No, no, these are, these are tears of joy. I can imagine someone convincing themselves that this is actually what happy happiness is right now. Of course, you, you know, you might respond, well, that person just doesn't know what happiness is. Uh, but it does raise an interesting question about, cause it's a self attribution, right? They believe that they're experiencing happiness. So I think if you think about it like that, I mean, that's the way that I think about this, right. In terms of an, a self attribution. Now it could just turn out that this person doesn't know what happiness is. That's one thing I suppose you could say. The other thing I think you could say is, well, this person has attributed the feeling of being happy, but they're just wrong about it. You know, just like I say, Jafar, I believe you're feeling angry and you tell me, no, I'm not angry. I've made a mistake um, about your self-attribution. And then it seems perfectly possible that I can make mistakes with myself too, right? I can, I can believe to be sad or I can believe to be anxious when I'm not. And that's, I think that seems, um, perfectly feasible to say, whereas on Barrett's view, it's a little bit harder to say things like that. I mean, I think I'm sure she would be able to say things about it. Um, but again, if it's, if you're able to construct it and there's no kind of objective fingerprint to be found, then it does raise an interesting question. I mean, I'd be interested to see what she'd have to say with, with this objection. Um, there's probably a few things she could say, but it's much harder to talk about correctness conditions, just like in postmodernism, like you mentioned. If you can't say, well, that's actually factually correct or that one isn't, you know, 
like, like this niche, niche kind of, there are only interpretations, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And um, especially with, with regards to um, matters that we can only rely on self-report um, mm. for, um, um, yeah. for example, the matter of um, emotions. Yeah. I guess the question becomes, uh, where, is the, where is the locale of authority? And, and I guess that's what your paper is getting at. Yeah. Um, and, and the question that arises from that is, well, if we can have instances mm. where, uh, where self-reports can, in fact, be incorrect, yeah. um, again, where is the lo um, locale of authority yeah. and, 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 and what, should, what should be thought of as the proper apparatus or platform within which we consent to, say, diagnosing someone with, uh, you know, being mistaken on that mm. front? Mm, mm. Exactly. And that's where I think it becomes important in maybe even the therapeutic process or even practices, because if I say, you know, I'm feeling pain in my stomach, then I probably feel pain in my stomach, but it's much harder to talk about mistakes with pain. I, I think you, I mean, probably not a lot of philosophers would say that if you believe you're in pain, then necessarily you are. I can imagine again, someone believing they're in pain when they're not. Although I think those cases are much harder to imagine, right? If you, if you're in pain, like your arm, it's very hard to meet a doctor that says, I'm skeptical, I don't believe you. Like most of the time, if you're in pain, you're in pain, right? And if you have a pain in your foot, I mean, even people with, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of phantom limb um, syndrome before, people can have pain in arms that don't exist. So you might actually have an arm that's been cut off and people will say that they have a pain in their arm. Now in that particular case, um, there's no reason to doubt that the person has a pain in their arm, like that's what they believe, but it just turns out they don't have um, an arm, but you wouldn't actually doubt the self-report. Like they do have a pain in their arm kind of thing. Whereas when it comes to emotions, if what I say is true in the paper, um, then the question is going to be, let's try to understand where the mistake kind of goes wrong. So in the paper, I try to argue that the sensations that underpin the emotion, they're very authoritative. So if you say, um, I have a feeling in the stomach, you know, butterflies in the stomach. I have a pain in my head or something. I wouldn't usually, I think we can take those as a given you know, people do have those experiences. It's what they do next that I think the error is more likely to come into it, right? Because then they have to interpret those sensations. And this is where I think Barrett's absolutely correct. A lot of the time we're going to rely on the context. So if you have a, like a stomach that's pulsating, or butterflies in the stomach just before you go on stage, right? Imagine you're talking in front of 300 people. It's very natural to think that I must be nervous, right? Because you look around you, you have this feeling, your hands are shaking. I must be nervous. But what's going on in the head when we're doing that? I think what we're doing is we're recognizing this feeling in our stomach and then looking at and sort of putting it all together. And then we say, oh, I must be feeling anxious. So it's that putting the all together that I think is very similar to what goes on when we attribute mental states to other people. So like you, for instance, if you're like, you know, pulling at your hair and, you know, you're like putting your fist down at the table, I'm not inside your head, but I'm going to infer that you're frustrated or something like that. Right. And I could be completely correct, but what I've done is I've looked at what you're doing. Uh, maybe you're in the middle of doing an exam uh, and you're like, you know, breaking pencils or something as well. So I'm observing your behavior. I'm looking at what you're doing. Maybe your face is going red and I pull all of that together and I come to the conclusion that you're in, um, you're angry. 
Now, if it turns out five seconds later, someone says, oh no, Adam, that's actually mistaken. What Jafar is doing is he is playing, um, he's acting and he's actually playing the role of someone that's frustrated for a new TV show. I'd be like, okay, I, you know, I misinterpreted that. I, I thought he was actually doing that for real kind of thing. Right. So I don't, I, I'm not actually in your head. I'm looking at your behavior and putting it together. And I think that same thing is going on in our own case, which I think um, is a little bit counterintuitive. It's just that we have more information. We actually have our feelings uh, of like, you know, being in the stomach or in the head or something. And then we take the context, we take everything else and put it all together. Okay. Um, interesting. Because I think this is, this is something that I, um, I'm probably going to... So I'm going to try and suggest something and you tell me what you think about this. Sure. Um, with regards to you know, you might cry out of happiness and you might cry out of um, sadness. Yeah. You walk on a stage, you start feeling nervous, you get hot, uh, heart palpitations and yeah. um, you put those clues together and you derive from that or um, infer from that nervousness. Um, when you were, when, when you were describing those scenarios, mm. my intuition was, I don't need the heart palpitations yeah. to know whether I'm nervous or not. Yeah. I can, I can know I, mm. I, I am in a position to know whether I'm nervous or not yeah. without having to put those elements together. I can know when I'm, when I'm crying out of sadness and when mm. I'm, when I'm crying out of ha happiness, I can know, uh, the, the difference between the two self evidently, right? Yeah. That's my take, mm. but, but, it, but it sounded to me and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded to me like, uh, like you were portraying the, um, the, the experiencer mm. as akin to an observer mm -hmm. to some degree. Mm -hmm. Did I hear you right? Yes, that's right. But, but with an important difference, then the one difference is that's why I call it partial first person authority. Yes because you have the, the feeling in itself, right? You feel there's something that it's like to feel heart palpitations. That's very different to say me watching someone else have heart palpitations, right? There's this, this is experience of it, right? You actually feel the qualitative experience of having that, uh, when you're having a headache or something and you feel you know, the blood boiling kind of thing, there is a first person, um, subjective experience. There's something that it's like to feel that that's very different than watching someone being angry as well. So in philosophy, we call this the, you know, the sensory or the, the phenomenological experience of it. And this is very critical, right? Um, I think this is something that all of us have. So I don't want to deny that. Of course, the step that I think that I make with well, the step that I'm making in the paper is to say that that's the sort of extent of that first person. And so I think I want to deny what you were saying that you can look inside and find the, the presence, if you like. Um, I guess the challenge with the position that you've outlined is how exactly would it work and what happens when you get it wrong? So on my account, when you get it wrong, you've like, let's go back to the example of stepping onto the stage. I feel this, um, experience in my chest, right? And it's something that feels like it's not just that I'm looking at my chest. I can be blindfolded, right. And not put my hand, I can, you know, I feel it. Um, maybe I've just put the context together with that experience. And I I've come to the conclusion that I'm nervous, but I'm not actually nervous. 
what I think has gone wrong in that situation is that I have taken this experience, which could actually be correlated with many different types of emotions. Right? So it could be that I'm feeling anger when I have that. I could be feeling another emotion. And I just have maybe made a mistake with the way that I've interpreted that sensation. Whereas if you go back to the account that you've just sketched, then I think you have to tell a different story about what happens when you make a mistake. So what's going on inside the head, like introspectively, when you say, um, mischaracterize anxiety, let's imagine that you're feeling nervous, but you, you make a mistake. Is it akin to perception? Like when I look outside the window and think I see um, a person, but it's actually just a tree, right? I, you know, I thought there was a person, but it was a tree. Is that what's going on when you try to look inside and find which emotions you're going? Do you kind of say, I think I'm like nervous, but actually I looked too quickly. I was actually feeling anxious. So I think with your view, although it sounds intuitive, and I think this is a view that I am pushing um, back against, you've got to tell a story about what's going on when you make that mistake. And I think the advantage of the view that I've sketched out in the paper is it does tell a nice story about what goes on when we make those kinds of mistakes. And I think the answer is that whenever there's self-interpretation, there's going to be you know, a chance of mistakes happening. Um, we'd be far less likely to make mistakes in the way that we experience pain or like a throbbing foot or something like this because we're not interpreting that. Um, it's a bit controversial as to what the word interpretation means here, but think about you know, your experience of pain, like if like a hammer falls on your finger, right? It's a throbbing feeling. You don't have to interpret anything. It just, it's, it's, it's in pain, right? And I'd want to say that that is the basis of our emotions, right? So some sort of sensation, and then that's going to be an interpretation of that as well. Right. So if we were to, if we were to, um, okay, so, so, so to sum up what you're putting forward, hmm. we do have access to our emotions. We probably have, we're probably best positioned, um, positioned to understand our emotions. However, our, the accessibility is partial and the fact that it, the fact that it's partial means that it might require further interpretation or further analysis for the accuracy to be assured. Yeah. Well, I suppose so there's a couple of things you said there, which are really interesting. Um, you said access to our emotions. The way that I would put it is to say that, um, up, so I guess the question is what is an emotion? Um, which I guess is a tricky question in itself, but let's go back to the example of nervousness. So I imagine that I feel nervous or I've self attributed to that. I have access to my nervousness, right? Now, in a sense you do as well, right? You can attribute nervousness to me. What advantage do I have over you? If you're a behaviorist, you might say there's no advantage, right? Because I'm behaving like I'm nervous and maybe someone else has even uh, a better chance of getting that right because they can actually see me in my behavior. So of course we have our behavior, but we also have the qualitative, you know, those feelings, those sensations that we have. And given that they're so crucial to our emotions, um, in the paper I reference um, some work that's been done, some empirical work to suggest that our emotions actually have maps in the body, right? So, you know, I guess a challenge to other views would be, can you think of an emotion you have that doesn't also have some sort of accompanying um, feeling in the body? Um, if you can't, then I think that does give um, credence to the view that 
there are these associations, and if that's the case, it does raise an interesting question about how we know them. So does that mean that if I say I'm in pain, I'm in, uh, that I'm anxious or I'm, let's say, nervous that I am, I'm not sure it gives me absolute authority because, as I mentioned, it's only partial authority. I think our authority is definitely going to be around the sensation ourselves, And that's where I think it's important therapeutically, right? Because when you're describing, say, a doctor or a medical practitioner, you might come in and say, I'm feeling really anxious right now. Um, the doctor can maybe be a little bit more um, skeptical of that than they might be when they say, um, you know, I don't really believe you're having that pain in your leg. Right? So I think when it comes to our sensations, I think it's far less likely that we would make them up or confabulate or get them wrong. But if I think the view that I'm sketching is correct, then it does actually require us to be far more skeptical sometimes of emotional self-attributions, especially when some particular emotions are going to share um, the same areas in the body um, that are uh, correlated with them. So if there are like five or six different emotions that are correlated with feelings in the chest, then raises a question, are you actually sure that you've interpreted that chest correctly? Right? Maybe it's nervousness, maybe it's something else, maybe it's something else altogether. Mm. But the actual feeling itself, and this is where the partial first person authority comes in, I see no reason to really be skeptical about that. So I think like if the view I'm describing is correct, it just um, it shows you where to be skeptical. Um, so the feelings themselves, you know, I think we should be fairly certain that when people say they're in um, pain or when they say this feeling, then, you know, it, it's actually very difficult to say they're not right because only you can introspect. Mm. But there, I think we stop the first person authority because when the doctor comes in or when someone else comes in, they're going to be interpreting everything. And I think you do that as well. It's just that you have this amazing advantage in your own case. You actually have the qualitative feeling and that could be beneficial. It might be a stumbling block. I'm mm. not exactly too sure about that. Yeah. Um, the um, I guess, and, and this is by no means a challenge. This is just yeah. me um, thinking out loud. Yeah. Um, uh, while you were uh, you were um, going through that, the the image that came to my mind was uh, the I guess the way I I would differentiate. Um, it felt intuitively that I have a problem with the word interpretation when it comes to emotions because mm. I I see emotions as uh, somehow somewhat prelingual even yeah. uh, you know i i have no difficulty thinking that the first human being two million years ago yeah uh, perhaps when he felt anger he killed somebody yeah. he didn't require yeah. language he didn't re uh, require words yeah. to to you know to mm -hmm. um to uh, <laughs> to describe his his yeah. feelings to anyone um so so that was that was that was one thing that came to my mind um so i i think i think the word interpretation uh, could mean that if I'm feeling something um, in 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 a particular way, my access to the feeling mm -hmm. is only quantitative, 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 quantitatively mm -hmm. greater than yours, and not mm -hmm. qualitatively. Uh, but I don't think you're saying that. I don't think you're saying that. Um, but but yeah, that, that, that's um, I guess, and. and <laughs> I was going to link that to to um, to, to consciousness and AI mm. because, um, and I know I said um, I said that we'll only talk about uh, emotions today. Uh, yeah. More than happy to get get into AI if you think you have the time. Yeah, uh, 
and if you're happy to um, talk about it. But but mm. the thing is, if if we take that step mm. to to doubt a an unparalleled authority mm-hmm. or individuals to identify mm-hmm. their emotions, yeah, then I don't see much of a difference between a non-sentient being and mm-hmm. a sentient being who could very easily be in confusion about his his or her emotions. Uh, what do you mm. make of all of that? But- yeah, a couple of things. I mean, on the last point, um, you're talking about a non-sentient being that has emotions. Uh, that, to my no, ears no. at least, sounds like a bit of a contradiction. No, no, no. But to go back to the first point, because I think this is kind of an important one. Um, I mean, when we're talking about self-knowledge, uh, we're talking about um, higher-order beliefs about mental states, right? So... Um, I mean, insofar as, I mean, do you think animals can have beliefs? Uh, small children can have beliefs. This is somewhat controversial in philosophy. Mm. Um, there are some philosophers that deny that. Um, personally, I think that, uh, I mean, I suppose it depends how you characterize belief, right? Or those mental states. Personally, I think animals can have beliefs, but uh, I don't know if they have, say, self-knowledge in the same way that we do. I don't think they can, um, I mean, it's hard to know, right? But I probably a little bit skeptical that animals can have um, higher order beliefs like that. They might. I guess it depends on how you characterize it. But when we're talking about self-knowledge, it's the act of saying, you know, I, Adam, I have this particular emotion. Um, I have this. And I think you can be quite angry without having any of those, right? I mean, and probably when you're really, like you're having an argument with someone and you're really angry, your attention is focused on them. You're probably not thinking, oh, look at this. I, I'm anger. I'm angry right now. So maybe higher order beliefs are those that you do when you're more reflective. And so for an animal that's, you know, running around the savannah or something or getting chased by a lion or something like this, you're probably just thinking, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. They're probably not also thinking, wow, I also have this feeling of fear right now, right? They're probably not having a higher order belief like that. Um, they're probably just, they're probably just angry or they're probably just in fear. So, of course, you can have those mental states without also having higher order beliefs about having those mental states. So really in the paper, what I'm talking about is self-knowledge. And I think this is the kind of thing that, I mean, again, it's difficult to really think about this for a creature without language. Um, But if you go to, say, the doctor and the doctor says, you know, tell me what emotions you're undergoing. I think what the doctor is doing is giving you a prompt to have these higher order beliefs, right? Or higher order beliefs about which mental states you're in. You know, I believe that I'm anxious. I believe that I'm um, you know, joyful. I believe that I'm in love or you know, whatever else that might be. So it's in those particular situations where someone is asking us to attribute an emotion to ourselves. And that's where I think self-interpretation is involved. Um, obviously, self-interpretation is not going to be involved in the case of, say, you know, like you, you just, like in the heart, you know, someone, like a lion is chasing you, right? What's your, your thoughts are just focusing on getting, getting away from there as quickly as possible. And you can imagine, I mean, it's, again, it's difficult to know the lives of animals, right? I mean, I have written about AI and, and maybe what it's like to be an animal as well. Um, but probably I can't imagine animals having higher order thoughts about, hmm, I was feeling quite fearful yesterday. That I wonder why that was, you know, tomorrow. I, mean, I, I don't think animals have those kinds of higher order thoughts. I'm sure they have. Um, very rich conscious lives. I'm sure they're capable of all those kinds of experiences like fear. Like if you interact with a dog, I'm sure you, I don't know if you have a dog or a cat, they have very complex uh, emotional lives, right? But I'm not sure that they have 
self-knowledge about those emotions, right? Because I don't think, I mean, again, I, I mean, I don't think they have language. Um, mm -hmm. Language probably requires like a syntax or so, something else far more complex than what animals are capable of. But no, nevertheless, I think they have consciousness. I think they have emotions. They probably just don't have self-knowledge of emotions as well, right? Because they're not reflective as we are. And maybe even young children. I'm not sure if young children can have the thought, wow, I'm, I'm angry right now. I'm fearful of this. I'm anxious about this. You know, maybe there comes a certain point where they're two or three or whatever age that looks like where they have those complex thoughts. And maybe at that time they've developed this interpretive work, right? Cause they're doing interpretation and they've started to form language and come up with beliefs. And maybe around that time when that interpretation gets sufficiently complex, then they're able to start attributing mental states to themselves, um, like pains and, uh, uh, like emotions or things like that. If that kind of answers your question, because I yeah. think I definitely don't want to say that um, the, the act of being in being in an emotion is an interpretive work. We're talking here about um, uh, you know like beliefs about you know knowledges yeah, maybe at a minimum justified true belief, right? And that's quite a complex psychological thing to undergo. So probably you can have to be a pretty sophisticated creature to start having all these higher order beliefs. You probably need a language. Maybe, maybe not, but you have to be fairly sophisticated, I think, to have, you know, you attribute these emotions to yourself. Yes, um, understood. And that was indeed um, a, a slight misunderstanding on my part. Um, cu curious though, um, was it was it your work on emotion and self-knowledge and epistemology that that um, took you towards AI? Um, was there a link there? Yeah, it was kind of like, the more I thought about self-knowledge, the more I thought about consciousness. So about so like in the consciousness literature, which I kind of got really interested in, um, they talked a lot about being in pain and being in all of these other kind of emotional states as well, but they didn't really, um, you know, like these, what we might call sensations or phenomenology, right? So, um, like, you know, the, the senses, right? So being cold or being hot, all those kinds of things. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, what. Well, can we be wrong about that? And you know, I thought I thought about Descartes and this idea of infallibility. And then recently, I saw a lot of discussions about, say, AI rights and um, consciousness and what it is to be conscious and how that relates to the brain, which sort of taught me about to you know this computer science. Because when I did computer science, I was building programs, and I was trying to say like, well, imagine that you had a program that could do everything that a human would do. Um, but it just didn't have a brain and it did it. Would that be conscious? It behaved like a human, it could talk. And then I found in the philosophical literature, maybe you've seen the idea of philosophical zombie. Yeah. So, you know, people discuss, you know, the idea, which is exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking about. So I was really, was, okay, cool. I've seen these kinds of things. Um, but then this interesting question comes about in AI rights. So when you're talking about artificial intelligence, and especially if you start to think about the history of animal rights, because you know, maybe a hundred years ago, people would have thought it would be absurd for an animal to have um, uh, any kind of you know rights or anything like that. And if you mention someone like Descartes, I mean, Descartes thought that animals were just like machines, right? They could, like, if you kick a cat or something, it's going to say "ouch" or "scream," but that's just like a you know the mechanics of a car. Like, if you have some brakes and push them really hard, it's going to get you know screech like that. So he didn't think they had souls and they couldn't have experiences. But if you start to think about that in terms of biology, so how similar a cat is to us, right? Their mammal is just like us, um, you know, like and dogs and chimpanzees that are even closer. Um, 
Well, they have pain experiences most likely because they're so similar to us biologically, right? Now, we don't know that because from a consciousness point of view, like how do we each know that we're conscious? We know it through our own introspection, right? Like I don't even know that you're conscious, strictly speaking, because I can only experience my own mental states, right? This is kind of like in philosophy, the idea of solipsism, only, only you exist, yeah. But I think that um, it would be kind of crazy to think that you're the only human being that has consciousness and all these other human beings around have, you know, exactly the same uh, kind of physiology that you do as well. And I think if you apply that to animals, well, it would be crazy to think that your dog has a pretty similar brain to you and it evolved you know, in a similar kind of way and didn't have consciousness. And then you keep, you know, coming down and saying that. So then you go to AI and you say, well, how does AI stack up to this? Because AI is getting more and more complex, right? And you don't want to say that the more complex something, something is, it's conscious because we can imagine really, really complex you know, machines. And then it does raise this interesting question of, uh, well, could consciousness arise in other creatures as well? Um, and if so, what would it look like? And if, if it can, then could you ever have conscious robots? And of course, if you have a conscious robot, does that mean that it needs to be treated, um, you know, like, like a moral being kind of thing? But, but, but let's, let's, um, let's just double click on that question. Could, mm. could you ever have a conscious robot? Yeah. Uh, what, um, I'm, I'm really curious as to what, um, where you have landed on that. Yeah, I mean, so I've written a paper called The Hard Problem of AI Rights. And right. uh, so I, I think that the answer's got to be yes, because I don't think there's anything particularly special about um, our own biology. However, I want to, of course, qualify that by saying we don't really know, because there could be something very special. But one of the things I think is really interesting, and this is about the hard problem that, yeah, probably know about David Chalmers's problem of the hard problem of consciousness. And I think it's really interesting that if you, let's say, open up a brain or look at a brain and this particular brain is in pain and this particular brain is having this emotional experience. And if you look at the brain, it's just gray matter. Maybe there's a little bit of electric, like what is it about this particular experience that gives rise to this, um, this, um, this rich experience, right? Like I'm feeling pain and you'd never know it because it just looks like a brain, right? And you know, what is it that, and there's an explanatory, there's explanatory gap as uh, philosophers say. So I think what's really interesting about that is that imagine that you had this other way of uh, creating conscious, imagine if it was silicon chips or it was something else, how would you know um, that it wasn't just a philosophical zombie? And I think the problem with this question is that a lot of philosophers want to say, oh, the hard problem is a pseudo problem. You know, once you understand the brain, you will understand human consciousness. And I think what we've done over time is we've sort of had a bit of a, a cheat like we're making shortcuts because we don't really know the answer. And what we're doing is we're kind of saying, well, we know we're conscious and uh, creatures that are a little bit like us are also conscious. But when it comes to insects like ladybugs or like caterpillars, we don't really know that. So basically the way that we're operating is to say that if it's like us, it's conscious. The further away from us it is, the less like we really know. So the question, are fish conscious? Hard to say, right? Some people say yes, some people say no. It's difficult because they're very different to us, right? Whereas a chimpanzee's conscious, probably everybody wants to say yes, right? Because their DNA is almost essentially like ours, right? They're like 99% similar to us, right? So the way that we assess whether another being is conscious is how similar it is to us. Well, that works pretty well for mammals and other things, but it starts to break down when it comes for like 
um, insects. And it really breaks down when you're talking about non-bionic uh, bionic matter, right? Like robots or other things like that, because where do you even start? We have no idea how consciousness can arise from say brain uh, matter. And this is, I think, even if you have a really complex account of the brain. So imagine that there's a neuroscience that's perfect. We know when you're in this experience, the brain is doing this and the brain does this when you're in that particular experience. Even if you knew that completely, you still wouldn't have an answer to the question about why this arises from the brain. And I think the reason for that is because it's not really an empirical, it's almost like a philosophical question. Um, and I think on the, until you solve that question, it's really hard to say that you know that a robot can or cannot be conscious because you could have like, you know, say through from Star Wars and it could be acting, it could be acting like you, right? Could, could say, ouch, when you cut its hand off. But is that just the way that it's been programmed? Uh, maybe it is like Descartes' um, proverbial cat that, you know, you hit it and it says uh, it cries out, but it's actually not really in pain. It's just an automaton. And it's really hard to know. And, you know, if you want to say the harder problem of consciousness is not a real problem, let's not worry about it. It's really hard to know what to make of those particular cases. And philosophers have given a bunch of different responses. Some say that if they're really complex, then they deserve to have riots and they're conscious. If you ask them if they're conscious and they give you a really complex story, then they are. But I don't know if you've used ChatGPT. ChatGPT can give you really complex answers. And no one thinks that ChatGPT is conscious. So com complexity alone is not going to get you conscious consciousness, right? So the question is, what's going to give you consciousness in non-human? Because we kind of know what it's like in human cases. And again, if the creature is a bit similar to us, we kind of think it's likely for that. But when it comes to non-human creatures or, or, or creatures made out of something that we don't even know, like an alien brain or something like this, I think there it's very difficult to even know where to start because what are we going to do? Is it safe to say that if we dismiss with the notion, which we have um, to a great degree, that consciousness mm -hmm. is created or, yeah. has been, or, or was created yeah. uh, by a creator, yeah. then there's then there's no way then there's no way that you can um distinguish between the between conscious being and uh, uh, conscious beings and non uh, unconscious beings well, especially if consciousness is not something that you kind of i mean detect you know, because it's not consciousness is not something that you uh you can you can find physical i guess um you know it where you see when you see it yeah kind of thing. But that's, you know, you, you know, when you experience it, right? Yes. And there are things that are physical that are correlated with that. Mm. But again, strictly speaking, I don't know that you're conscious kind of thing. Mm. So it's very difficult. I mean, imagine if uh, like an alien crash landed on Earth tomorrow and, you know, it cut its hand or something and it didn't have wires. It didn't have, it was just like a green liquid that was running through it mm -hmm. and had like a couple of eyes. It spoke, it told you where it came from. Would it be conscious? I mean, you'd probably presume it was, but you wouldn't really know, right? Because what test would you do? I mean, you ask it whether it's in pain and it says yes. Okay. But we know from asking chat GPT that that's not going to be sufficient. Mm -hmm. You can get it to solve complex maths equations, but it's not clear that that's going to be a good test. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear what the test would be to be conscious, right? We know what the test is in humans, right? But when we start to move away from humans, 
it's very difficult to know what that test is going to look like. If an alien did crash down and did that tomorrow, you'd probably err on the side of caution. You'd probably want to take its word. But from a philosophical perspective, it's really hard to know, right? Because it could just be a zombie. For a while, this explanation convinced me Hmm. uh, or sufficed to distinguish conscious from unconscious Mm. what what it's like to have an experience yeah to me to me that was that was basically what consciousness came down to or it was probably the best best definition or explanation that i had gotten uh to date but uh, but i suppose the way you're putting it um if a robot is complex enough um to be able to describe or react just like a human being does Mm. uh then how can we say that it's not conscious? That's basically the case you're making, correct? Well, it would be pretty, probably pretty hard for us to say that it's not conscious, but I'd probably want to say that even then we couldn't be sure, right? Because how do we test consciousness now? Like, what's the thing that we do? We have a look and see how close the creature is to us, right? Yes. Um, like with humans, if, like if someone is screaming out in pain, um, and their brain is doing something, the pain receptors are going, then we attribute pain, right? But if we find a creature that's very different to us, or like a rope, like for instance, C3PO, right? Imagine that you've got this robot and it's very complex talking about its inner life, and then it's screaming out in pain, saying, you know, please help me. Why couldn't that just be a complicated uh, generative AI bot that happens to be, you know, have these sound effects built into it? Mm. So you can be skeptical, right, of what's really going on there. And I think there it does matter because if it's not conscious, then potentially you waste resources on making sure that it's okay, right? Right, so, you know, like, and and that's where I think it matters ethically because consciousness is what, I mean, be careful what I say here, but consciousness really does matter um, in terms of ethics, right? In terms of if someone is conscious, if you're conscious on the operating theater and you're in pain, that's bad. Um, obviously, you can't do whatever you like to someone that's died, but you know you can't harm them in the same way because they're not experiencing anything, right? You know, conscious, you know, pain is bad. Strict, you know, all things being equal, um, and so it doesn't matter whether someone's conscious or not, right? And then when it comes to say um, a robot or another, like an alien or something like this. It doesn't matter whether they're conscious or they're just like a car because one is murder. The other is just like, imagine you're a toaster, you throw it out when it's finished, you're not really harming anybody. Right. Um, I'm going to step into um, a territory that, that um, it's your own fault. You mentioned that. So I'm going to, so I'm going to bring it up. Um, yeah. Free will. And especially yeah. because you, because you mentioned ethics, uh, when it comes to consciousness, uh, yeah. that, um, that is that is also something that uh, comes up a lot when the yeah. when the conversation around free will mm-hmm. is being had. Um, people like Sam Harris, for example, are uh, great advocates of the idea that um, it's an it's an illusion. Yeah. Um, I would very much like to. I'm I'm very mu- uh, very much mindful of time. It's been fifty five yeah. minutes, so please yeah. feel free to let me know um, um, whenever you need to go. But um, I will start by asking. Um, do you think it? Do you think it exists? Do you think free will is something that we uh, possess in the, mm. in the real def- um, definition of the term? 
Yeah, this is actually, before I give an answer to that question, I mean, one of the biggest problems with this debate that I've found um, is that, and I've actually written a paper about this actually, uh, is that so many people use the term free will in such different kinds of ways. Right. And that's fine because we all you know, def define words in whatever way we like. But I think the problem is so bad when you talk about free will that my proposal is that we should just abandon the term. I don't think, like, talk of free will, I think, has really run its, um, uh, run its course, right? I think that what we should really be doing is talking about moral responsibility. We should be talking about actions. We should be talking about um, intentions. And I think that we don't really need to even talk about free will because if you look at, say, the literature, some people that believe in free will says it's the ability to break the laws of physics, right? Other people that talk about free will, um, like Sam Harris, sometimes talks about the ability to control the thoughts that comes into one's head, right? Other people, among other, he says other things, of course. Um, other people talk about free will, this is Galen Strawson, as um, having the ability to be ultimately responsible for your actions. And he says that this is so implausible because, you know, you can't, you have to be the cause of oneself and you can't do that. So ultimate responsibility is an, an impossibility. So there are all these different conceptions of free will in literature. And so my proposal would just be to say, let's just get rid of it. And let's talk about what we're actually, what we actually care about. Right. I think what we care about for the most part is moral responsibility. Right. Um, because we can, like, we can say, Hey, Sam Harris, let's have a debate about, uh, whether you think you can control the thoughts that come into your head. And I think Sam Harris is right. You know, reflect, use introspection, the thoughts, they just come in. You don't have control over that. And then you can have a debate about what the implications of that are. All right. Maybe one of the implications is that we're not responsible for our actions. Maybe, maybe it is right. Then you also have the issue of causal determinism, you know, supposing that the world is determined. Um, some people say that that's a prerequisite for moral responsibility. So I would, I would say, rather than ask questions about whether we have free will, I would ask questions like, do the laws of physics or does causal determinism undermine moral responsibility? Um, and then have the debate on those kinds of terms. Because I think, although there's some debate, I think we know what we mean when we say moral responsibility, right? Having the ability to be praised or blamed for one's actions. So if you say a child is not responsible for, say, stealing a sandwich from a shop, um, because they might just be, you know, I saw a video the other day of a magpie doing that, like going into a shop and taking a sandwich. The magpie is probably not morally responsible. But human beings that are adults probably are, right? You might come along and say, actually, you think that's the case, but I don't think so because the laws of physics are that we're all causally determined and we couldn't have done otherwise. And that's required for moral responsibility. So I would, you know, I might disagree with that, but I'd much rather have the debate on those terms. So I don't think the word, I think the free, uh, the term free will is so um, multifaceted and actually a new book by Robert Sapolsky actually called, um, I think it's just called free will. You might've seen that come out. I've seen a couple of reviews of the book and he doesn't really uh, care to define the term free will in the way that certain philosophers do. And that's fine because of course you can define terms in whatever way you like, right? But I think it's got to the point now where there are so many different definitions. What we really care about is responsibility, agency. And so I would rather just talk about, are we the kinds of beings that can be held morally responsible? And I think once you answer those questions, these questions about free will, 
they don't really seem that important and um, they kind of evaporate, right? The real questions, we already have the vocabulary to, de to describe questions about free will, agency, intentions, desires, consciousness, like we've just been describing, um, thoughts that come into our head. I know Sam Harris talks about that sometimes. And then the question is, what are the implications of all of that? I mean, I'm completely at peace with that because um, indeed the question of moral responsibility is the greatest, mm. is the greatest concern for yeah. people who, for people who have, who are troubled by uh, mm. people like Sam Harris, who basically um, yeah. undermine the notion, um, you know, from the get go. Yeah. Um, and yes, that's fine. Let's have a conversation about, um, about moral responsibility. But I suppose if your counterpart is resorting, is, re is um, resorting to evidence to prove that free will doesn't exist, which is yeah. the entire project of people like yeah. Sam Harris. Yeah. Uh, then you can't help but, you know, meet them at, uh, um, at the same um, playing field where they are operating. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. But if you think about it, like what's, I mean, it's been a while since I've read Sam Harris's book, but he is concerned with moral responsibility. And we might say once we've talked about more, so maybe free will is not the same as moral responsibility. But what are these other things that we care about? Are they agency? Are they something else? I mean, there's always something that you can kind of point to and say, that's what we're, we're concerned about. Um, so what would this, like, what is this thing that free will is? Like, describe it to me. And somebody might say, oh, no, it's not more responsibility. It's required for more responsibility. But then what is it? Is it just the ability to consciously choose our decisions? That's free will. But there then we already, have, we already have vocabulary. The vocabulary is consciously choosing something like that, right? So wherever you see, I mean, like, try it yourself, right? Whenever you see the word free will described in a book or article or something, see if you can replace it with another um, uh, another term. I think sure. in almost every case, every case I've come along, you can. And so it doesn't matter what the other person, where they want to debate, I think you can still debate them with other vocabulary. Um, so whether someone wants to talk about the ability to consciously choose, mm -hmm. or if someone wants to say, ah, oh, yes, but I'm describing free will as the ability to control the thoughts that come in, comes into your head. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, perfect. Let's just drop the term free will. Let's talk about thoughts coming into our head because that's a really interesting debate. Or somebody might want to say, I do, I do, uh, define free will as the ability to um, circumvent the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. and that, that you need that to have free will. And since you can't do that, we don't have free will. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, great, forget the term free will. Let's talk about the laws of physics. Isn't it interesting that we can't break them? What are the implications of that? So I think every time you see a discussion about free will, I think in every case you can actually just substitute it out for something else. And I think that makes the debate easier to have, right? And really this idea of free will, I think, is a bit of a hang-up from you know centuries of... Uh, philosophical debate i think we really don't need it anymore mm. kind of thing. um don't you think there is a um there is a, a just um, sticking with the moral um, dimension of yeah. um, free will uh, don't you think there's a stark contradiction between um between not allowing for free will mm. or, or the notion of of um free will or personal agent or personal responsibility to exist but uh, at the same time, believing that one is responsible from a moral perspective for their actions. 
because that is um, that is indeed a, a position that people like Sam hold. Um, in one conversation, Sam can get himself from denying the existence of free will to, but yes, we do have moral responsibility and we yeah. do have agency in our actions. That that to me is an irreconcilable um, um, equation, and and I I, I um, and there is there's more to it um, in. In a podcast, in a conversation with Lex Friedman, Sam Sam questions the notion of potential, uh, meaning that if you if you are the person you are, if you have if you have had the upbringing that you have had, if you have the genes that you have had, if you have had the experiences that you have had, yeah. um, there is only one option in front of you in terms mm-hmm. of the next action that you're going to take. Yeah. So a very Newtonian deterministic, um, um, fatalistic kind of yeah. kind of view with regards to human, human action um, and human agency. So if I subscribe to all of that, I do not, I, 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 I cannot for the life of me see myself um, at the same time uh, picking, picking up the notion of personal responsibility and accepting it. it 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 would sound unfair to me mm-hmm. uh, i don't i don't subs- uh, um, subscribe to that school of thought but i just don't see how those people can reconcile um yeah um the two yeah and, and this is actually really interesting because if you and uh i think maybe somewhere some sam harris does say something about we're not really more ultimately responsible in this very robust sense but supposing that sam harris does have this view um i mean I don't know if you've read Dan Dennett, but he talks about the free will worth wanting. And you might say, okay, so Sam Harris believes we have more responsibility, right? And we can consciously choose things. Stop the, stop the train. That's all I care about. Right. What is this thing for this thing that he denies called free will is really not that important. Maybe it's just like really robust philosophical thing, but mm-hmm. don't worry. Cause you see a lot of these discussions, right? You see people say, you know, they write these books about free will that doesn't exist. And then they get to the end and say, but don't worry, this is good news because now we can you know, do, do this and that. Mm-hmm. But if it's such good news, what is this thing free will they're pointing to? Um, and in some cases, it's this notion of being ultimately responsible for what you're doing, right? And again, you could call that free will. But again, why bother? Why not just say, here's a notion of ultimate responsibility. Some of us think we're ultimately responsible for what we do. But as you correctly mentioned, what about genes? What about upbringing? What about culture? All of that's, you know, partially responsible to go back to that. So we're not ultimately responsible. What are the implications of that for, say, punishment, for holding someone responsible? That's a really interesting question. And I think you can do that without really, like, why don't we just leave this idea of free will behind? Because I don't think we actually need it uh, anymore. We can have these discussions and modern science can tell us about determinism, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. Um, and we know about psychology now, about the role that nudging has on people. We know about the impact that the genes have, uh, the impact on upbringing. All of that can be discussed and how that relates to agency and whether someone can be praised or blamed for what they do, right? So Trump talks about being a self-made man, right? Whereas if you actually look into his past, you'll find that he had a lot of help he lived in a country that, um, you know, had a particular economic system. So all those things contributed to who he is, right? So is he ultimately responsible for what he has right now? Well, the answer, of course, is no, right? Okay. But then the question is, what are the implications of that? Like, 
do, does our system of moral responsibility presume ultimate responsibility? And if it does, then maybe we have to radically change it. Maybe it doesn't, you know? So I think that's a better question to have mm -hmm. um, versus the question, you know, oh, I, I think our upbringing undermines free will. Like to me, that's not a very precise question, mm -hmm. um, you know, because you're going to say either yes or no. So like, and then you have to say, well, what is free will? Whereas if you say, look, here's a difficult question. To what extent are we responsible for our own behavior? We have to start from the starting position has got to be something like, you don't choose where you're born. Um, you don't choose the school you go to. You don't choose your parents. Right? You don't choose all this kind of stuff. There is a place of agency, right? What does that look like? How should we adjust the way that we um, think about things, right? And as Sam Harris talks about a lot, there are brain injuries you can have too, right? So brain injuries can cause you to do things. Sure. But again, rather than talk about, say, this is taking away someone's free will, you can just say something like their decision-making procedures were you know, heavily affected by the brain injury. Um, their capacity to exercise self-control was completely gone, right? You, you can talk about that. We already have the vocabulary to talk about all the stuff without even using free will, because I think that the second you talk about free will, then you're almost like you're looking for a, a particular thing to point to. There it is. We have it. We don't have it kind of thing. But as soon as you say, actually, we're talking about more responsibility, the kind that we typically think other human adults have, then it's very clear what you're talking about. Um, and then you can start to have those conversations. So I, I'd be very happy if people stopped talking about free will, but they started talking about all the important things that the free will um, debates have been, you know, like so consciousness, decisions, responsibility. Happy to talk about all those things. But I just wish we would retire this word free will because it's got so many different dimensions and it confuses so many people, all these kind of implications. You know, some people say free will is just the soul, you know, whereas if we get rid of that kind of talk, then I think we can have more meaningful kinds of discussions. So that would be one thing to say. And then I guess the challenge for you is, can you think of a sentence that you can't just swap out the word free will with another term that we already use and a more clearer sentence is there. And I think you probably can't. I'm happy to be persuaded on that front. Mm. Um, Professor, yeah, a bit of a challenge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Um, what's next for you? What are you working on these days? What should we keep an eye out for? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. I'm working on a book on informed consent. Um, so this is uh, consent with online practices. Yes, I and, saw a paper um, um, yeah. on your, um, I'm not sure if it was ResearchGate um, website or yeah. one of the websites that you have uh, listed your, your papers. Um, I did see that one. Um, th that also has to do with AI, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah, so it's, it, this, this was really about, um, I suppose, big data and some of the analytics and um, the, the way that many of us, I guess, fail to read those consent forms. And the, the point of the book is to really look at the way that consent is handled in the medical context. Right. Um, and then marvel at the fact that it's so poorly understood when it comes to big data. So the fact that none of us read consent forms, none of us really have any idea about what's happening to our data. Mm -hmm. um, and so the book is really about looking at some ways that we can start to uh, bridge these gaps. And so um, I go through a couple of solutions in the book uh, without giving too much away just yet. You'll have to wait and see sure. when it comes up. But it's really just about identifying the problems. Um, so some people, like, for instance, don't see it's a problem. Like, uh, th there's a couple of great stats that I, I came across when I was researching the book. So something like, um, 
and this is a 2010 stat, but it would take something like 76 workdays to read through all the consent forms that you get in one year. And that was like, you know, 13 years ago. So you can imagine how long it would take for every single consent form, right? So we just, none of us read consent forms. In Australia, something like about 94, 95% of Australians don't read all the consent forms they get with online internet um, kinds of transactions. So none of us really spend the time to understand what's happening with our data. And we just don't have the time, right? And every time you see one of these big scandals, whether it's like Cambridge Analytica, or maybe even say with the recent Optus um, scandals where you know the information was taken, why weren't the risks sufficiently explained to us? Maybe they were, but we never bothered to read the form. Uh, maybe Optus didn't feel it was necessary to put those in the document. But if you look at say the medical world, um, you'll see that doctors actually tell you the risks before you agree. So really, you know, a lot of the time we don't even consent, but we very, very rarely ever have informed consent uh, when it comes to these online um, transactions. So th the book is really about um, looking for some solutions and then kind of suggesting that we really have to sort this problem out now, because especially with the rate of um, growth in these kinds of sectors, you're going to start to see some really, um, I guess, problematic cases with emotional detection, going back to the emotions, there could be AI, so no, there is AI they can actually detect what emotions you're undergoing. And if that kind of biometric data is um, captured and combined with other data, then suddenly uh, there could be some pretty big invasions of privacy. And yeah, it, it gets pretty ugly pretty quickly. So the idea <laughs> is to try to improve the consent practices right now while things are a little bit more manageable because in the future, there'll be so much data that's collected. You know, your smart fridge, your smart watch, everything's smart getting all your data and the prediction when it comes to targeted ads are going to get more and more um, precise. And I think that, uh, you know, at the moment things are fairly rough, but in the future they'll become even rougher when we have, when companies have more information. Yep. Um, and so really looking at what we can do. So mm. I guess it's a bit of a work of applied ethics. Mm. Well, that's, that sounds very interesting. And, Good on you for taking such an initiative because it sounds ultimately complex, um, all things considered. Mm -hmm. um, I'll look forward to see what you'll produce on that front and um, mm -hmm. look forward to future conversations. Professor, thank yeah. you so thank you so much. I think this is a, a great place to stop. Mm -hmm. uh, much appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Great talking to you and hopefully uh, we can talk again soon. Would love that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye. Okay.